Cagney was at my side every moment of writing. He was sitting either at my side or on my lap while I wrote this story. He is imbued in this story. Listening to the Believe in Dog podcast. I'm your host and resident dog mom, Erin Scott. Not only can a dog be your best friend, but I believe a dog can be a healer, a teacher, and an inspiration. I can't wait to share with you stories of how the love of a dog is changing our lives and changing the world. This is Believe in Dog. Welcome to episode 72 of the Believe in Dog podcast. I'm your host, Erin Scott, and thank you so much for being here today. Our guest today is Joanna Kloster. And with Joanna, we're going to explore the questions, what is life like with a rescued puppy mill dog? And what can we do to stop puppy mills? Joanna is a retired teacher. She's an author of the book, Lily Unleashed, which we'll be hearing about today. She's an advocate for ending puppy mills, a very passionate advocate. And she's also a dog mom, which is where her journey started. And we're going to have an extra special guest at the end of the episode. You see, the book Lily Unleashed that Joanna wrote is written about a sixth grade girl named Lily and her experience adopting a puppy mill dog. And it just so happens that I happen to know a girl who just finished sixth grade, who's a big, huge animal lover. And she's going to share her thoughts and give us a book review of Joanna's book, Lily Unleashed. So make sure you stick around for that. I know February was Pet Dental Health Month, but we really need to think about our dog's dental health all year round. I recently learned that 80% of our dogs over three years old have active dental or periodontal disease. And dental disease is actually a sign of other inflammation in the body and can be connected to everything from cardiovascular problems, kidney problems, fatty liver disease, diabetes, certain types of cancers, joint disease, pulmonary conditions. Your dog's dental health actually can affect everything in their body. And you know that I am obsessed with finding the best and healthiest products for our dogs. So I was so excited to find out about teeth. That's right, teeth. Just a tiny spoonful of teeth powder in your dog's water bowl will make a huge improvement in your dog's dental health. It's the only thing that ever made my vet stop and go, hey, what did you do with Penny's teeth? They actually look so much better. So forget trying to figure out how to get your dog's teeth brushed without them biting you. Forget those sticks or green shoes. What you need is teeth powder, just a tiny amount in your dog's water bowl. And listeners of this podcast can save 20% on your teeth order with the code ADM. And you'll be on your way to a healthier smile for your dog without any anesthesia needed. Check out the link in the show notes to find out more about teeth and save 20% on your orders. If there's one thing that you should know about me, it's that I am incredibly moved and incredibly appreciative of people who go through an experience in life and then say, oh, I need to do something about this. And I know that I might not be able to stop this problem on my own, but I have skills and abilities that I can use to shine attention on something. 
And I relate with this in my own way, especially around dogs, because I tell the story to Joanna during our interview today that, you know, I so didn't know anything about dogs when we adopted our first pit bull, Lucy, that I didn't even know that there were people who didn't like pit bulls. And I was like, oh, no, if they met Lucy, they would understand. And that's part of how I got started on this road to volunteering and to advocacy work. And so I loved, loved, loved hearing Joanna's story of she didn't know anything about puppy mills, and then she ends up helping her friend with a puppy mill dog, and then being inspired to adopt her own puppy mill dog, and then realizing, oh, there's even more I can do. I want to let people know about this. And so she wrote her book, Lily Unleashed, and she really wanted a way for children to be able to connect with this issue in an age-appropriate way. And so I think that you'll love that Joanna is so passionate, has really spent the last 15 years immersed in this world of bringing light to puppy mill dogs, but doing it in a way that feels good, that doesn't feel like, oh my God, what am I going to get into? Can I emotionally handle this book? Because I'll be honest, I was a little worried about that going in. It sounds like such a heavy topic, but I think Joanna brings such heart and lightness and optimism that you can't help but be touched by her passionate work. So we're going to hear all about Joanna's background, her career path that brought her to teaching, and how Cagney, her puppy mill rescue dog, came into her life, and everything that's happened since then. And I think you're going to love hearing from Joanna. So let's get started with the author of Lily Unleashed, Joanna Kloster. So we are here today with Joanna Kloster. Hi, Joanna. How are you? Uh, good morning. I am wonderful. <laughs> so I'm so excited to talk to you, and I have so much I hope we can cover in our time together. So I always love starting out asking about your childhood experiences with pets. Uh, people who've listened to the podcast before know that I did not grow up with animals, and I didn't even know that I liked dogs until I was 25 years old. <laughs> and so I always love hearing other people's stories. And, and what did that look like for you? First of all, that's amazing. But bless <laughs> you for that you came into the animal world and got to experience the beautiful love of animals. Well, as a kid, believe it or not, I've had animals forever. <laughs> the first pet I had, remember, is a duck called Dudley. And we lived in the projects, which meant uh, we had two levels of apartments. And we lived in this very small small apartment with five people. And my father is, is my, the animal lover that I got my my love from. And he brought home a little duckling for Easter that grew into a big flapping flying duck around the apartment that I took baths with. Eventually, though, we had to return him to the, the people we got him from. So I've had cats. We've had dogs. Uh, I've always had animals in my life. I even had a horse once, and that was a miracle because uh, for about nine months, I got to have a horse. Uh, but it got a little expensive where I lived, so I couldn't keep up with it. But yes. Oh, that's wonderful. And so I knew that you at one period of time were working as a teacher. And so was that something that you had like always wanted to do? Or is that just something that life kind of took you down that road? Uh, what, what did your career path look like? Well, I was the youngest in my family and I was a great aunt. I was the best auntie in the world for my brother and my sister. So I spent a lot of time with their children and I, I adored that time. And then I finally went to college after different schools and 
I still didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. It took me forever to choose my, my major. And I chose communications. And I tried to get into that field in the New York City area, which is very competitive. And I couldn't get past being a secretary, which I didn't want to be. So I flew the coop and moved to Sacramento. And uh, that's when I realized what I wanted to be. And my mother was so thrilled. I want to be a teacher. You know, I tried to go and, and learn to do it at, when I was in my undergrad days at the end of my uh, in my senior year. And they told me I had to go back to school for four, two more years to get all the credits. And I just I couldn't do it. I was tired. I was working full time and going to school as, a, as an older returning student. I graduated when I was 29 and a half. So that's what I realized out in California. And I went back and uh, then I got into teaching. But it took me a while. I had to sub for two years. Couldn't get a full-time position. Then we moved to uh, New Mexico and I was able to get in saying that I would, yes, I would get certified as a special ed teacher, which I was not. So I came in kind of through the back door. I got in on a special license uh, and the rest is history. It has been a perfect fit. I absolutely adored my time as a teacher. It was meant to be. And uh, it was the hardest job I ever loved because it took so much time to prepare lessons and create really rich experiences for my kids. We did a lot of service learning projects where the kids learned how they could help others. We worked with the nursing home residents. We did Heifer, we did Heifer International fundraisers. They learned about passing the gift on for these poor, really low uh, communities around the world that are, are challenged economically and how, and they learned how rich they were. And I worked in very low income neighborhoods, but the kids still learned how much they had compared to so many people around the world. So yeah, I absolutely love teaching. And what grade or subjects did you teach? So I was elementary. I was from first grade through fifth. And I started at special ed as a resource teacher. Then I moved into the classroom for about eight years. And I did oh my every grade but fourth. I did first, second, third, fifth. And then I ended my career being a gifted and talented teacher. And not because I am, but because the position was open. But I helped guide kids into uh, challenging projects. And that was really uh, like the full spectrum of, of teaching. And uh, it was just extraordinary working with kids was the high point of my career. I absolutely adored it. I love children and understand developmental progress and, and what they should be exposed to at different times. I love that. I, I think that so many of us kind of fall into doing something and then are like, oh, this isn't what I want to do. What do I really want to do? And we're kind of on this like meandering path. And and so I kind of love that that you found what brought you joy and and did that like i i feel like we all should uh follow the path that lights us up and and you know what and those experiences enriched my ability to talk to kids because i had lived in different places i had done different jobs a lot of different jobs before i got there so right i felt it was it gave me a, a perspective and that like i did all these other things now i know what i really want to do right. <laughs> <laughs> and so you must have had Many pets over the years, but I know that Cagney was this very life-changing dog for you. And and my life-changing dog's name is Lucy, the dog that made me fall in love with dogs. And so can you tell us the story of Cagney and how he came to be a part of your life? Uh, at the time, we did not have a dog. Uh, we had lost our German Shepherd Husky to a, a condition that they were prone to. And we were spending a lot of time with our friends who had purchased a Maltese from a breeder. 
And then uh, they wanted another one to have a pair because they wanted, a, they both wanted a lap dog. So I got to know the breed Maltese through our friends. And the second dog was a breeder male from a puppy mill. And I didn't know what that was. I didn't ask too many questions, but we started watching their dogs when they needed some sitting, fell in love with them. And lo and behold, the president of that rescue, the uh, North Central Maltese Rescue out of Racine, Wisconsin, asked our friends, oh, they they did such a great job of watching Cooper, who had many issues because he was locked in a cage for eight years. Would they be would they be interested in a dog of their own? And they sent a photo of Cagney and the rest is history. His face was so he was such a beautiful little boy. We So we brought him into our home and from the get go, he was my shadow. He attached himself to me and I never had a dog be so attentive. But immediately he started exhibiting behaviors of separation anxiety, of territorialism, like uh, barking, real extreme barking, uh, not letting people walk in front of the, you know, our yard, which was very large, far from the front door. Uh, I found a trainer that specializes in puppy mill rescue dogs and learned all about that. And then I started reading uh, about puppy mills. But then I also started writing during writing workshop for my students I had to model the writing process. So I write, writers write about what they know. So I wrote about, about life with Cagney. And the kids started asking questions when they heard puppy mill, Mrs. Kloster, why did they lock dogs in? Why did they lock him in a cage all every moment of every day? Why didn't they bring him out? I mean, that's not how you treat a dog. You love a dog. So they had all these questions. And I tried to find a book that would explain it on their level. And I could not find any. Because of my communications background, I had been doing some writing for my local newspaper, little snippets about slice of life stories that people seem to enjoy. And I said, OK, I'm going to try my hand at a book. I started it as a picture book. And when I took it to the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators, one of their conferences, which I belong to, a, a, a writer, has, a professional writer has said to me, you know, I love your idea, but I think it's too big for a picture book. Have you considered a novel? I said, no. Uh, and she said, I really think you should try this. So I I, I put my I, I put that in my head and I thought about like planning it out. Well, how could this how could this flow out and, and play out on the page? It took me 10 years of many, many, many revisions and also working with doing my research. But I realized I could turn this into something important to helping people understand why they want don't want to get a puppy from a pet store or online. You need to know where that puppy comes from and the damage that it's, it's creating in these dogs. So that's how it came to be. And Cagney was at my side every moment of writing. He, I have him. I have a picture of him lying on a big paper that I drew, like showing the arc of my story, where he's lying on my notes. He was <laughs> sitting either at my side or on my lap while I wrote the story. He is imbued in this story. And I know that the dog in the book is named Cagney. Uh, and, you know, you really describe the character in the book and her journey uh, with him. Is a lot of that what you experienced? Yes, it is. A lot of it is because it's this is Cagney's legacy. So I modeled the story. I built it around what I was experiencing, but I took a step back and made it fictionalized. But all of the behaviors including one that Dr. Franklin McMillan felt was not in, was not representative. And he, when I, I corresponded with this, this expert, he said, uh, you need to somehow mention that this is not usual behavior for puppy mill dogs, that Cagney nipped. 
And what he did is, it, and it didn't start immediately. It, he, he was maybe seven or eight or nine years old when he actually like nipped at someone's pants leg and he never bought bit. He only would nip at your pants leg in a way to, I don't know why he did it, but Dr. McMillan said that is not usual behavior. So I had to put that in there, but he did do it because Cagney was unique. That's why. <laughs> but yes, it was all modeled after Cags and his behavior and me trying to work with it. And so what do you know about Cagney's background and where he came from? And, and how do you have an idea of how old he was when you got him? Yes, this is rather extraordinary because I learned he was uh, in an Amish puppy mill uh, in the Thorpe, Wisconsin area. And that for about eight months, he was used as a breeder male. Because I wondered, why was he still in a puppy mill at eight months as a male? He would have been shipped out at, at like six weeks, as seven weeks as a puppy. And so he would have been used as a breeder male, but he wasn't producing. So they needed to, he was wasting, uh, you know, their money. They were feeding this dog that wasn't pumping out or making, producing puppies. So they sent him to the dog auction at Thorpe. And that is a dreadful place where they have piles and piles of cages of breeder dogs that either aren't producing or are too old. And so they may be trying to change it with, out with somebody else's dog and they're put on a block and they're held up like a shoe, like an old piece of something, and they're auctioned off. But was it, what was amazing was there was a woman who was there to cover the story. She was a stringer. She was writing for Best Friends, that website, Best Friends, and the sanctuary out in Kanab, Utah. Yes. She didn't know what a dog auction was. And she was talking to the protesters outside who were protesting the dog auction. They were a rescue group. And the woman said to Becky, Becky Monroe, you mean you've never been inside? You need to go inside. If you're going to write a story, you need to know what this is all about. Becky walked inside, and this was the auction that Cagney, it was the last auction. Cagney was there, and she's checking to see if she has photos of him as she walked around. And she looked at the eyes of these dogs that were locked in these cages, and they were vacant. They were dead inside. This changed her life, and she went on to become an advocate and write a book called Bark Until Heard, How I Found My Voice Among the Silenced Dogs. So it was really hard. It was amazing. So she and I were, I know, she she and I have become friends over because of this. So uh, that's what, that was her path. And that was Cagney's path. He was auctioned off. And luckily, he was purchased because he was such a beautiful little boy, although he was all matted and filthy. He was purchased by Mary Palmer, who is a saint. She's about 83 now, and she's still doing this, rescuing dogs. Uh, and she took him in and got him vetted and got him, you know, neutered and cleaned up and uh, and then told my friends about it. And that's how we got Cagney. Wow. Yeah, quite the story. I know it's amazing. And so there are people who from the rescue community who will go to these dog auctions to try to take dogs in to save them. Yes, yes. And as far as I know, there. Though that auction is no longer, there are other dog auctions. They're in Missouri. And it's usually the people that I've learned. It's the Mennonite people and the Amish people who are doing this. These are the millers who are doing this. And uh, it's very disturbing to read about the, there's a, you know, somebody wrote about the experience. Well, she did in her book, reading how they just auction them off like they have no feelings. They're just these, these creatures that are wooden sitting in the cages. It's heartbreaking. Yeah, I'm. I don't usually get emotional when I'm I know, Aaron. doing interviews, but I am right now. <laughs> so when I, I that's part of my research, and when I read that, I, I this is why I had to write this book 
because the, I, I felt like you did when I was learning this. As the layers were being peeled back and I learned more and more, and then I learned about the USDA and how they're asleep at the wheel and how they even stopped writing violations for six years. They just issued a a, a warning. It was called a teachable moment. Instead of writing a violation, like they walked into your puppy mill and there's dogs that are bleeding, that have wounds, that are matted beyond belief, that, that are flea infested. They didn't write a violation. They said, oh, you just need to fix that. I'm not kidding. Congress had to get involved to, to say, stop this. You must start writing violations again. So we cannot rely on the USDA to ensure that the, the, um, the Animal Welfare Act guidelines are being followed. That's why there's so many groups out there speaking up for the dogs, like the the uh, Humane Society and the ASPCA and bailing out Benji. That's why we have all of these groups, because there's a huge problem. Right. Yeah. I get a little, I'm going to take my, take a deep breath. <laughs> I get a little emotional. <laughs> it's completely understandable. And I think all the listeners will completely feel the same way. Well, tell us more about your life with Cagney. Like, what was the process for getting him comfortable with living in a home? And like, how long did it take for you to kind of fall into a comfortable routine? And and what did working with a trainer look like? Oh, boy. Uh, patience is the first thing. Everything. If you can hear, I'm a bit of an ADD type of person. <laughs> uh, maybe it's coming from the New York City area. I don't know. But my folks were that way. So uh, I had to slow down. I had to really even walking fast around cags you had to be aware of your actions because it was new he was in a cage for eight months now that's not the longest amount of time many of them in cages for years but eight months left an indelible mark on his behavior so uh i was his safety i was he was always near me so i had to try to actually wean him and I couldn't really do it. I had to make, I had to put space between us. I had to work with having him listen to commands and uh, instructions to wait, you know, Cagney, you know, work on the wait uh, signal or work on the uh, sit and the down so that he also understood he had to listen and he had to do his part. Uh, but it always took time. We had to actually make changes when people came to the house. I didn't want him running to the door, barking, you know, barking a really wildly and getting upset so I would have him in the back bedroom I would let people come in sit down <laughs> and then he'd come barreling down the hallway regardless but they'd be sitting down already and then he'd come running in and barking then he'd stop so we had to set our life we had to make some adjustments knowing what his reaction would be to make the situation less reactive for him and and that's what people who get a puppy mill dog really need to understand and I think the rescues do a good job. I would think most of them do. Talking to someone who's never had a rescue dog, and they do. They have a huge uh, interview process. An application is large. They talk to people about making sure you have a fenced-in area because they're known to bolt the dogs, you know, many of them. Cagney? Now, Cagney wouldn't. Cagney would have run to me. But <laughs> many of them, in fact, I had to make that change in my book. When I had my friend Becky read it who wrote her book and she's a rescue person a foster she said you you can't have mrs stadler giving the dog giving cagney to, to lily on the street area without any enclosure you've got to have them in an enclosed area should be on a leash because that dog could bolt like that 
So yeah, it really mattered. I had to get the facts right. <laughs> so we did make changes for CAGS uh, in how we had people come to our house. Even I couldn't let people stick their hands, you know, like and pet him immediately. They had to hold their hand out, let him sniff it, keep a distance, you know, barely have their hand there. Very slow. People had to greet him slowly. He, you know, because he wasn't a dog that ran up to you with a wagging tail. He ran up to you with a barking mouth, <laughs> you know, yeah, because he was he was low confidence boy. I can relate with some of this in, just in my own way, because we have a very fearful dog named Nino and he's this 80 pound pit bull. And I always joke that most of that weight's in his ginormous head, you know, because he's he's got that big <laughs> head um, and he's a gorgeous dog. But he. I, you know, we don't know a lot other than animal control pulled him out of some kind of bad situation when he was about two. And so he's been with us for seven years. And, you know, all of our other pit bull dogs have been the kind that run right up to you and just want pets and belly rubs and love kids and love everybody. And Dino is not that dog. And so I can certainly relate like what it looks like to adjust your lifestyle. I mean, we don't yes. have a lot of people over the house. And when, you know, if we do have people coming in, you know, he has to kind of be put away. He barks. He doesn't like that. You know, we, you know, my mom, like he's nipped at her before and, you know, the quick movements, like that's what it is. It's, he doesn't oh, like yes. quick movements. Yeah. It's uh, it's definitely been an adjustment and it's, you know, even though we've had dogs for 20 years now, we're always learning and, and trying to make him feel comfortable and gain confidence in the world. So I think uh, anybody who's had like a shy and fearful dog can relate in, in their own way. But this is definitely a more extreme version, it sounds like. You know, even people when we'd be having our guests over, Cags would actually sit next to them on the couch. But they got up to you maybe use the restroom or go into the kitchen. Yes. When they and and when they come back in, he starts barking at them. Yes. <laughs> it's the, I think it was the movement. He just was so insecure yeah. that he felt he needed to do that. And so you make adjustments. That's what it's all about. I I didn't mind because he gave <laughs> us I loved him so deeply and he loved us. It was totally worth it. I I sometimes you know, we talk about with Nino, like He's this lovable, snuggly, sweet dog, but no one will ever know that except for my husband and I. And that's the and that was isn't that the hard part, Erin? That's the hard part because that you know they're so loving, yeah. and you want them to share that with your friends yeah. who are doggy people. But there was only one couple that Cagney let in, and that was the couple that that shared that brought us to Cagney, and they watched him, and he loved their dogs. They were the only dogs he went to, and he loved Bogey. Oh. So it was Cagney and Bogey, like the old-time <laughs> actors. <laughs> yeah, need a Lacey in there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so let's talk some more about puppy mills generally. How do most dogs that are in that are being raised in a puppy mill situation? How are they sold? And that, like, is it always through pet stores? Like, is all dogs in a pet store coming from a puppy mill? And are all puppy mill dogs going to pet stores? Or, or what does this all yeah, look like? Okay, the bottom line is a reputable breeder will never sell their dog to a dog broker who bro sells those dogs to the pet store. So or, or even directly. So it's never going to be a reputable breeder. Now, that opens the door to, well, is it a backyard breeder? No, because they're not licensed. So the only ones who are available that are licensed are puppy mills or commercial dog breeders. 
So those, that's why they're all from puppy mills. Because a reputable breeder wants to know, wants to meet you, the buyer. That's how it works. And I applaud them for that. Uh, I know some reputable breeders and they are so specific, particular. They, they wouldn't even sometimes sell their dog if they learn about things that the family shares, that it's not an appropriate fit. Maybe the children are too young for maybe, or there's another concern, whatever. All the dogs that come from pet stores come from puppy mills. Now they have to be licensed, but we have learned that there are millers out there, puppy mill breeders that don't have licenses. There was a horrendous example of a, of an Amish breeder up in Iowa. He didn't even have a license at first is my understanding. And, uh, or there was, it took a while and he had about a thousand dogs. It was incredible. And the USDA went in and did an inspection when they finally started doing inspections again in 2020. And they found her dogs in horrendous states. They were sick. They were bleeding. They were in terrible conditions. And there was one dog called uh, a golden retriever, dog number 143. That was a bag. Uh, she was just bones, skin and bones. And they, and they wrote that up, but they didn't confiscate the dog. The dog was on its last legs. And the USDA inspectors left. And then they came back three months later on a courtesy call. And they wanted to see this dog specifically. And the dog was hidden away. But they found that dog. And they had to euthanize that dog immediately. Because she was on death's door. And that dog inspired, uh, I can't remember the politician's name, to write a piece of legislation called Goldie's Act. Now, this is important for your listeners to know. There are two pieces of legislation out there right now. Goldie's Act and the Puppy Mill Protection Act. Goldie's Act is about enforcement. It means that now it gives, it would give authority to the USDA to confiscate any dogs that they see in dire straits right out of that mill. Before that, they couldn't do it. But now they have, and they can regulate, there's stronger regulations and they can confiscate uh, sick dogs and dogs in need. The Puppy Mill Protection Act is about standards. And this is extraordinary. For finally, this is the, and three is the charm. This is the third time it's being introduced. And it is about standards. Like the first standard is they have to make the cages larger. In other words, the dog, all the biggest dog in that crate or kennel must be allowed to stand on its hind. It must be tall enough for it to stand on its hind legs and not touch its head. That's pretty big because right now, they only have to be six inches larger. The cage or the enclosure only has to be six inches larger around its body. That's it. Imagine six inches around its body. It can barely turn around. Yeah. Next big thing is the Puppy Mill Protection Act will make the, the breeders have to take the dogs out of the cages. They Right now, they never get out. They never touch the earth. They would have to be let out once a day for exercise and socialization. They must be touched. They also must have water 24-7. Can you believe they don't even have that as a stipulation right now? It, it, it defies my logic. But anyway, that's what your readers, your listeners need to know. They can call a place called uh, openstates.org. Openstates.org will tell you who your legislator is. Then you can write right away and say, please support the Puppy Mill Protection Act and Goldie's Act. And so these are federal uh, legislations. Yes. Yes. So we would be contacting our congressperson, or our census. Right. Yes, because right now they're federal and they're in the 
It starts in the House, and then when it passes the House, it moves to the Senate. So right now, I think the uh, Puppy Mill Protection Act is in the House. So call your House representative. That's your congressman. Right. And it, it's easy to find. And we and, and I found and I've been handing out little slips of paper and I should I, I can make that available uh, to you. I'll send it that readers. You'll, I'm sorry. I keep saying readers. Your listeners can actually copy the blurb when they call up their legislator and say, please support H.R. 1624, blah, blah, blah. And then they can even call after hours. They don't even have to talk to anybody. They can leave a message if they feel shy. Yeah, I'll make sure you have access to that. Wonderful. Area. And we'll have links in the show notes for everybody also, because yeah. this is important and, and we can do something about it. Yes. Grassroots. This is what my book is about. It's a grassroots movement. Yes, we want legislation, but it takes so long that we can do something right now. We can stop buying puppies at pet stores and online. That will dry up the supply. So when I think of puppy mills, I think of the small dogs, like the Maltese you were talking about, but you just mentioned there's even golden retrievers. So is this something for all breeds? Like I, I just never thought of it that way before. Right. You're right. Because, you know, they take up more room, so you can't have as many dogs, but there are specific, there are mills for, uh, well, because Aaron, believe it or not, at that puppy mill where Goldie was found, they also found babies, puppies, so young scattered in a horse stall among manure and filth. So they, they, they put them in all kinds of enclosures. So that would have allowed for a larger dog. So they put them anywhere they can. Uh, and that's the thing. It's, it, it's beyond, it's almost unbelievable, except it is believable because I've seen the pictures. What should pet parents know if they are interested in adopting a puppy mill dog? I feel like we've touched on this a little bit. And sometimes I almost feel like it takes like an advanced or a, a kind of dog savvy person to want to take this on. Um, that's my thought anyway. What What is your thought? And because you weren't somebody who had done a ton of rescue work before Cagney came in. So what does it really take for, for somebody to want to adopt a puppy mill dog? Takes love. Really, that's all it takes. You know, there are some extreme ex- cases of breeder dogs that have been locked away for nine, eight, nine years. They really, uh, and they're so afraid to, of everything. That would take a little more of a, uh, and usually it is someone who knows, who is aware of what the needs are. But, you know, there are many puppy mill dogs that end up in shelters. You need to know this statistic. It's been recorded by the Humane Society of the United States that over 25% of dogs in shelters are from puppy mills. They're purebreds. Okay, so where are those purebreds coming from? They're not coming from reputable breeders because reputable breeders will take their pups back or they'll take their dog back. If you, if you, for some reason have to re say, you can no longer have this dog, whether, I don't know what the reason is that breeder will definitely take that dog back. Whereas a puppy mill, you can't take it back to the pet store. They don't want that dog. So it goes to animal control. That's why we have 25%. And that 25% increases the amount of dogs in shelters that are, and that lifts the numbers. And there's more dogs then that have to be euthanized because they can't all be cared for. So do you see how the puppy mill situation is influencing the amount of dogs that are euthanized each year? Because they're feeding into the the shelters around America. So I'm thinking that there's people who are getting dogs, you know, they go out, they fall in puppy love with this dog in a pet store, they don't know 
what or perhaps they're even lied to about yes. where the yes. dogs are coming from. Right. They get this like adorable little puppy home, but it has a lot of behavioral issues or even maybe health challenges that they're not equipped to deal with. And then they can't take the dog back. So that's how it ends up in the shelter. Is that kind of how this yes. is all playing out? And then that shelter might not and might not know it came from, well, they don't know it came from a puppy. Right. No, they'll say it came from the pet store. Right. So you, I would like your listeners to also know these dogs from puppy mills at pet stores are a consumer welfare concern for this and protection issue. Like you said, these dogs, unsuspecting buyers get a dog from a pet store or online, then the, and then they get the dog and they start manifesting health and behavior issues. Then they, because people love the dog, they start paying out of pocket. Uh, one of the big problems is the exorbitant financing fees of for loans where people go in and they're talked into a dog at a pet store. They don't have the, the, the wherewithal financially, but they're told by the pet store personnel, oh, you can put it on a loan and you can pay for it that way. And then if you miss a payment, the the, uh, the interest rate goes up sometimes as high as three to 500%. And the you, the ASPCA has been has sued and the HSUS, the Humane Society, has sued Petland, the biggest supplier of puppy mill dogs at their stores for these exorbitant loan financing scams. So consumers are getting ripped off by the exorbitant finance charges. They're getting ripped off with sick dogs that they don't know are sick until, you know, and they may, I know someone that got a puppy from my local pet store two years ago, two days after she got it, it started having major diarrhea and upset. The dog had parvo. Not only did she spend $2,000 for the dog, the initial price, by the end of that, she was able to save the dog's life with 24-7 vet care that amounted to $6,000. And the pet store would not cover the vet bill because they didn't go to the pet's vet. Well, the dog needed 24-7. If you would have moved it, it would have died from the vet. It was on It was on intravenous. Oh, and there's one other really scary thing. There's a disease that these pet stores and they, uh, the CDC has it on their website uh, that 57 people got sick within the past two years from campylobacteriosis. This is like MRSA. You know what MRSA is. It's the antibiotic resistant bacterial infection. Right. Well, uh, campylobacteriosis is like that. It's the dogs are getting it because the puppy mill breeders are over injecting antibiotics into their puppies. To, because what happens, oh, this is, you need to understand this. The, how do pet stores get their puppies? The, the puppy mill sells their dog to a broker. And the broker picks up the puppy, the puppy mill dogs. He makes stops at all these puppy mills, picks up the puppies, puts them in his van with all these other, mixes them all together. Doesn't know what dogs are sick, which ones have what diseases, mixes them together. They infect each other. They go to pet stores. Then they get sick within a day or two. And, but the meanwhile, somebody's waiting for that puppy. The buyer gets that puppy home. Now that puppy has parvo or that can't be low bacteriosis. And that one will end you up in the hospital. I have pictures of pet store employees. A young girl was 16 years old, was a pet store employee, got sick, had to be taken by ambulance because this disease is very dangerous. So now that's another thing happening. So it's just a ball of wax that's growing and growing into a major problem for consumers. There's one more thing your listeners need to know. 
they will be told every time from a pet store, uh, from a pet store that sells puppies that we get our, listen to this phrase, we get our dogs from USDA regulated breeders. That means they're coming from a puppy mill and the USDA is sanctioning this mistreatment of the dogs. That means if you see USDA breeder, walk away. You don't ever want a dog from a USDA regulated kennel. It means it's a puppy mill. That's why they're there. That is good information for everybody to know. So we're here today specifically to talk about your book, Lily Unleashed. I have my copy right here. And you gave us a little bit of the background and it took a long time, it sounds like, for this to to, to all come together. But it's really a, a beautiful book. And, and I really like it's written about a middle school girl named Lily and her experience with this puppy mill dog. And I just, it's a just beautifully done book. It includes all of like the drama that you associate with middle school. Like uh, my, my nephew's in uh, ninth grade right now. So this is all still very like fresh to me with his experience in, in middle school. But I, I even just love how Lily gets this dog is she kind of is duplicitous <laughs> and kind of trying to sneak it into the house and telling, you know, somebody, oh, my, you know, my mom's okay with it, but she's just not home. And I, I just feel like that's such a perfect middle school, like experience of this kind of like trying to be an adult, but kind of lying and covering things up. Like it really is just, just beautifully done right from the beginning. I really put on my teacher hat in dealing with children. And I did actually work with middle schoolers for one year when I started my gifted and talented position. We were working with middle schoolers. So I do have that experience. But I thought about, uh, and it was important to bring in the issue of lying. You know, white lies. Is, is it ever okay to lie when it's for the right reason? And this child, Lily, this kid, is a major dog lover. She just lost her dog and she feels so guilty about it. So she's not about, if she ever can help it, she's going to make up for that mistake she felt she made in her life. So, yeah, so she tried many things until she got to the lying. I mean, she tried to convince her teacher that that this was okay. You could call my mother later just so she could get the dog in the house. Right. But I actually had a lot of fun writing this. I would write for hours and getting lost in the story, like adding more and more. Every time I came back to it, adding another layer, another layer of conflict, another layer of problems. Uh, and it, over the year, it morphed into so much more than it was in the beginning because, you know, Olivia wasn't even in the story when I started out, the mean girl who turned out to not be. And we learned why she was a mean. So right. I had all the background. And you know what? I know about this because I had students that had challenges, that had challenging backgrounds. And I worked with parents. And I know that sometimes, you know, it's the kids have a hard time there. Parents need some guidance as well. So I had that background as a, an experienced veteran teacher. So I was able to bring that in and it was a joy. <laughs> I had a lot of fun writing this book. <laughs> I had a lot of fun reading it. Like I said, I, I picked up on just all these little, like I said, there's like the mean girl and like the best friend. And then the the guy who like, he's my friend, but maybe he's a little more than friend. I mean, it just, yeah. like it gets on just 
you know, everything that that kids at that age are dealing with. Yes, yes. um, And even though it's been a long time since I was in middle school, like I, you know, I felt like I was right back there. (laughs) And, you know, that was fun. I had to put myself in those shoes and I'm I'm a very far away from being a middle schooler. (laughs) But, you know, we never forget, do we? We We never forget. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, one of the themes that I liked, too, is just this kind of like underdog kind of theme. And, uh, you know, and I, I feel like we're always sort of programmed to root for the underdog, or at least a lot of us are. I know I, I always identify in that way. And uh, and I, I like this idea of, you know, getting writing something for children and getting them involved from a young age about why these things matter. Yeah. And uh, I, I feel like children today or young people today and <laughs> I always tell my husband, I never feel old until I'm around young people. <laughs> and then I'm like, oh, yes, I'm I'm definitely not a young person anymore. Um, I feel like they're so much more socially attuned and socially active at a much younger age. I mean, I was definitely not aware. And I don't know if it's the Internet, the social media, what it is. But do you think that children today are, are more inclined to to pay attention to these things and take action? I really do. I believe they've become, uh, I don't want to use the word negatively, sensitized, but they are more aware because of the internet. It's true. And the topics that come up and they bring them to school and then they're discussed uh, and looking at, I still saw, well, I was subbing for quite a while uh, and then I started tutoring and I'm actually working with kids and looking at the con- the, the, the context or the topics that they're looking at in school now uh, between middle school and high school. And they are looking at these issues and they're deep and I see the books that the teachers are having them read. So yeah, it is wonderful. And then I can draw on my background from doing the service learning projects that we worked on that we could help other people and we can help other, you know, in different ways just by writing. We wrote letters to nursing home residents and the kids and they wrote back. And the best was the day that we had 27, uh, we had 20 wheelchairs roll in through our school of our, our uh, pen pal, our pen pals, and they were from the nursing home. And we had a Christmas exchange. We made them quilts and they gave us little gifts. This was the most, I will never forget this experience, but it was all because we built a relationship between these older people who shared bits of their life with the kids. And kids, were, and some of these people were quite old and the children like, wow, you did that. And that happened in your life. And so we got so much out of it. And then we we saw how we could make a difference by writing, how the written word can uplift someone and make a difference. Yeah. That's really beautiful. I wish I had had more of that. I feel like mine was a lot of memorizing things and preparing for exam, like the standardized tests or something. Right. <laughs> so you've touched on some of the uh, federal legislation that's going on to, you know, being proposed to to help puppy mill dogs. And I can tell that you've gotten really into the advocacy work. And I feel like it's almost like once you have this experience of this dog in your life, I mean, that's kind of how I started. Like I adopted a pit bull dog and I so knew nothing about dogs that I didn't even know that there was like a stigma around these dogs, that there was people who didn't like these dogs, that there was laws. And I just felt like, oh, my God, if you met my Lucy, like <laughs> you would understand. And it, it that's sort of what ignited me down the path that has led me to where I am today is just 
loving this dog so much, I wanted to do something to help dogs. And so I, I feel like you've experienced that and, and you've gotten really into advocacy work. Can you tell us more about what that looks like? Yes. Okay. So I, I knew I had this book and then I had to think, well, what are you going to do with it? Yes, it's nice to share it as re- for readers, but why can't you get out into the public and have that little wire mesh, that wire cage on a table with a little stuffed animal inside and show people this is what the mama dogs live in 24-7 and talk to people so they knew. So I had to get some branding involved. And that's when I thought about what shall we name it? So I published it under my own brand, Empty Cages Press, because the goal is to empty the cages. And I worked with Mindy Callison, a beautiful young woman who created Bailing Out Benji. She had gotten a puppy from a pet store and had a similar story, learned about puppy mills. And this woman created from a grassroots organization that is now nationwide. And she has uh, advocates all across the country. She works in tandem with the Humane Society uh, and John Goodwin, who is the head of the end the puppy mill camp and puppy mills campaign with the Humane Society, they work together. I contacted Mindy, who enlightened me about the puppy mill situation and advocacy. So I went out with my table and talked to people at my farmer's market. And then I got on a Zoom or a, it was called Puppy Mill 101. It was a big uh, event online. And I learned so much about how to be an advocate. So Mindy Callison guided me into the uh, to learn that. And I was working with her specifically, but now that I'm selling my book, I can't represent Bailing Out Benji at the same time because they're a nonprofit. But I do tell people, check out her website, Bailing Out Benji. They have a wealth of information. You can even learn where your local pet store gets their puppies from and if now, and if they had any violations, if the breeder had violations. So uh, Mindy Callison is amazing. And so is the HSUS. And there's so many others. So... So now what I do is I go out into the public at different events. In fact, my first event was at a home and garden expo. And I paired up with my local shelter, which is Colonial Capital uh, Humane Society. And they happened to have puppies that day. They had a puppy adoption day. So I had my, my table right in front of them. And they were a magnet for people. I sold out my books that day. But I got to talk to a lot of people about my mission and what's going, how they can help end it. So that's what I do. I go to different events and I talk to people and I, I, you know, I go on your podcasts. I go on, I have my Facebook page and my website. Uh, I have a Twitter and I'm picking up more followers and they're sharing it and they're, we're sharing it back and forth. The other advocacy groups like myself, because we're all in it together. That's that's what we're trying to do. So that that's that's how I get my word out. And then you know, in the schools, like I said, I mean, it was blew me away when I made a connection with this faculty member who says she teaches an ethics class and they're studying factory farming. I said, "Oh, can we talk?" <laughs> and I told her about my book and I explained, and she said, "I would love for you to come in," and I did. That's wonderful. I yeah. I just feel like once people start to understand that they can't help but want to get involved, and yeah. and so. One of the things I'm always interested in, and I will say I'm a little like cynical sometimes, um, you know, why and just your take, your opinion, like, why is it even hard to pass laws to regulate these things? You would think that that's what everybody would want. And so are there lobbyists like for the puppy mills? Are there legislators who are again, like voting against these things? And what is your take on, on why it's difficult to 
to get to do the right thing and to get the right laws passed. Thank you for mentioning that. That's very, very important. Unfortunately, I don't remember the exact title, but there is a lobby uh, within the pet industry. They have a huge lobby, a lot of money, and Petland is a franchise of pet stores across America that has a lot of money, and they they have a and they 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 sometimes pay for more lobbyists. Like Missouri was just having a bill that would have made a difference for the lives of the dogs and the pet and the puppy mills. And Petland went and hired five more lobbyists in Missouri to talk to the politicians to help sway those politicians against voting for this bill. It is called politics and there are agendas. And my understanding is this is an agricultural issue. And in states that are agricultural, like the, the big ag states that have a lot of puppy mills are Missouri and Iowa and Kansas, they're farming states. Well, the fear is this, that if the, Puppy mill breeders have to have higher standards for their animals. Well, then they're go- everybody's going to want higher standards for the pigs and the chickens. And then that's going to cost more money to the farmers to make better standards. That's You see, it's a slippery slope. Even though dogs are pets, not that chickens couldn't be a pet or a pig or a cow, but that's, that's a big part of the picture. The, so the ag industry, is heavily involved in sponsoring, in contacting leg- legislators and saying, it's, they're all like work together. And it's, I'm trying not to be so negative and, uh, and present that picture, but unfortunately that is how politics works. So it's a big, uh, po- the politicians have to walk a fine line between doing the right thing and making conditions better for the dogs and saying, this is, it's for the dogs. Uh, and we need to speak for them because you would never treat your dog this way, Mr. Politician or Mrs. Politician, but yet you allow it at the puppy mills. And that's what I'm hitting home on. So I am really, I'm reaching out to all of my local politicians and I've sent them a copy of my book. I'm making inroads with them. I'm talking to them. And what's beautiful though, to see, we have a lot of bipartisan support. There are Republicans as well as many Democrats that are supporting the Puppy Mill Protection Act. They're co-signing, they're signing on, and they're signing on to Goldie's Act because they see the light. They, their hearts are hearing the the right the the rightness of these two bills that this needs to be done. We can no longer ignore these egregious, inhumane conditions when they see picture after picture of these dogs living in hell. And I and I think that that's why it's important for. The listeners for all of us to to make the calls to send the emails to our political leaders you know our, our congressmen because they need to know that people are paying attention to these things and not just I like again I'm a little bit cynical with our whole uh, political system but you know uh, I think if nobody's paying attention if they don't know that this is an issue that's important to the voters then it, you they kind of end up siding with the lobbyists and the message that people are paying for the politicians to hear. And so it's not until they start getting calls and getting emails and realizing, oh, oh, actual constituents and voters know about these things. Oh, 
maybe there's something I need to to pay attention. Yes. To. And what I will send, I will send it to you so you can post it. I will send you links for your listeners to make it so easy. One is a link by the Humane Society. All they have to do is click it and put their name on it. It will go directly to their legislator. You put their zip code in and then it'll pull up who that person is, who that politician is. And I'll also send the snippet. Uh, the snippet uh, to talk about the, the Puppy Mill Protection Act and what to say to the congressman directly. I'll send all of this because my goal is to make it easy. You're so right. It just takes a moment. Click the link or to make that phone call. It's really easy. Once you, and, and you can do it after hours, like I said. So you won't feel uncomfortable. If you feel uncomfortable, you can just talk to a machine, but they record it just as good as if you called speaking to the person. Right. Because people, you know, our legislators need to be held accountable and know that people are paying attention to these. Yes, absolutely. Well, Joanna, thank you so much for your time today. I'm so excited that you are educating all of us about puppy mills, about how we can make sure our dogs don't come from puppy mills and how we can get our kids to care about these things with your beautiful book. I'll make sure that we have links in the show notes. And, uh, and the one thing I did want to mention, you know, I was, I was a little nervous to read your book just because I didn't know how emotionally draining it was going to be because it sounds like it's a heavy topic, but I like, it's not at all emotionally draining. It's completely uplifting. It's completely like you're cheering the whole way and, uh, and it's completely appropriate for children of any age, you know, I, I just, you just did such a beautiful job. I'm like, I feel like I'm a better person for having read it. And oh, I hope you. that everyone will buy it for the kids in their life. And, and maybe you read it too. Cause like I said, it, you know, it's a chapter book, like it's a substantial, you know, book, but it's, it's a good read for kids and of all ages. Thank you, Erin. I couldn't have asked for a better statement about the book because I struggled with that. I It had to be uplifting and I didn't want to traumatize my younger readers. So I had to be really careful, but I had to present the problem. So they understood it's a big problem, but then it had to be uplifting. So yes, you, you couldn't have said it better. Thank you so much. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time today. And we'll all be following along and cheering you on with this, this work to end puppy mills. Thank you. I'm so excited for you to hear from our next guest, Megan. If you're a longtime listener of the podcast, you might remember Megan from all the way back on episode 28 when she last reviewed books for us. So Megan is the daughter of a friend of mine, and I've just been so impressed hearing about Megan's journey with animals. Her mom, Lisa, says that Megan has always been an animal lover and also always been passionate about animals being treated well. In fact, when Megan was just six years old, she decided that she wanted to start collecting donations for our local humane society, both monetary as well as wish list type items. And so every year since Megan was six years old and she's now 12, Megan organizes this collection of donations for the humane society. And I just love that. And so I was really excited to see what Megan would think of the book Lily Unleashed. And I wanted you to get a kid's eye view of this book and not just take my word for it. 
I was also curious about what someone Megan's age would think about puppy mills. I know for sure that I was an adult before I became aware of this issue, but, you know, there's a lot of things that weren't being talked about (laughs) when we were growing up that maybe should have been. So I'm also excited for you to hear Megan's thoughts about puppy mills. So let's get started with Megan's book review. Megan, welcome back to the podcast. How are you today? I'm pretty good. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm so excited to hear what you thought of this book, Lily Unleashed. So can you tell us how old are you and you're now on summer vacation. So what grade did you just finish? Well, I'm 12 years old and I just finished sixth grade. It was fun. I really enjoyed it. I have great teachers. Oh, that's awesome. So you're the same age as Lily in the book, right? Mm Mm-hmm. That's what I thought. Okay. That worked out good. <laughs> and so you have two dogs right now. Is that right? Yep. Lily and Rose. Oh, you have a Lily dog. That's right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so tell us about your dogs. Well, Lily is a mini golden doodle and she's really cute. She's so tiny. And Rose, she's a combination of a coonhound, a black Labrador, and a boxer. Um, Lily kind of looks kind of like Cagney on the cover of the book, so I thought it was really cute, like, such similarity between the two. Yeah. Different background, but similar looks. <laughs> and so, did you like reading the book, Lily Unleashed? hmm I absolutely loved it. It was a really good book, and, like, it gives so much information about the puppy mills and, like, why puppy mill dogs are under dogs. <laughs> And so tell us a little bit about the book and, and, like, the plot of the book. Well, so Lily had this dog named Ruger, but he died of the symbolist heart condition, which I thought was really sad. It, like, occurs just kind of before the plot of the book starts. It's kind of hard to explain. But her teacher adopted Cagney, and so and her best friend, like, roped her into helping by taking in Cagney, but her mom is still getting over the loss of Ruger, so it's kind of like her mom doesn't find out until Cagney comes home. So it's <laughs> kind of like, uh-oh. She kind of tried to sneak her in the house. <laughs> yeah. And her mom says that um, Lily can have Cagney for 30 days, and then they're going to revisit the situation. And But Cagney has separation anxiety, so that's kind of a problem. So they figure out a way for him to not be so freaked out whenever Lily's at school. On top of that, the neighbor, like, he bites the neighbor. So, and then he scares her, like, later. And meanwhile, Lily's doing a writing project with her best friend Renzo and her ex-BFF, Emily. So, even more drama to that. And then her neighbor ends up, and eventually her neighbor gets a dog and then helps with Cagney because her neighbor actually used to have a dog. Who knew? Like... And it's got, like, the perfect ending, or shall we say, perfect. (laughs) (laughs) So what was your favorite part of the book? My favorite part was probably when Lily, Renzo, and Emily gave their presentation, because I thought that was just really cool, and, like, I learned a lot about puppy mills. And I also feel like I love when Lily became friends with her neighbor, Miss Hinselman. It's hard to pronounce the name. But I just thought it was really cool in that. When that happened, they became friends again. Yeah, because in the beginning, she was kind of, like, like, scared of her neighbor. <laughs> yeah, because her neighbor was so crabby and standoffish and, like, stalker. <laughs> <laughs> so had you ever heard about Puppy Mills before reading this book? And did you learn anything, or were you surprised? 
about anything? Yeah, um, I had already kind of knew about it because um, I read this book called Fighting for Life, and that was also, like, it kind of covered it too, but, like, this was, like, really amazing. And I also, so in fifth grade, I think it was, we had to choose, like, a um, persuasive, we had to make a persuasive essay thing. And so that was when I really, really started, like, learning about, I kind of knew about Hobby Mills then. And so uh, if it's okay, I'd like to share, like, an excerpt from it. Oh, yes, please do. Um, so they lock dogs up in, like, these little tiny cages, and they make them, they make the moms have, like, a lot of puppies, which is really unfair to both the moms and the puppies, too. And they don't have a lot of food and water, and they're not really let out to stretch their legs, which isn't healthy for them at all. And they also have to use the bathroom in their cages, which is very unsanitary. And Rose, who I mentioned before, um, we got her from Paws. Um, I don't know if she was rescued from a puppy mill, but it's a possibility. Like, she wouldn't let us touch her head or paws at first. And she's gotten a little better with that now, um... And I was surprised to learn that puppy um, mill dogs are not usually euthanized humanely. And I, that made me really mad. Like, I can't believe like, how they can live with themselves without a like, guilty conscience and not, like, hate themselves for hurting dogs like that. So in the book, Cagney showed some behavioral problems like separation anxiety. Had you ever heard of that before? And why do you think that puppy mill dogs have this problem? I have heard of it. Um... Because I feel like it's kind of common in, like, a lot of dogs, especially rescues. Rosie did pretty good, actually. But I think that the puppy mill dogs um, have behavioral, experience these behavioral issues. Because being alone were a mind of the, of the um, negligence they received in the puppy mills. Like, they didn't get much attention or love. And they're, trying, and they're probably trying to get as much attention as possible to make up for the love that they missed out on. So they want to enjoy it to the fullest. That makes sense to me. So do you think it's important to stop puppy mills? I think that it's immensely important um, to stop them for good. I think that in order to stop puppy mills, that we need to adopt from reputable breeders and animal shelters, like people who actually take care of the dogs and like socialize them. Um, we should educate young people, like teens and tweens, and even like... I don't know, like, seven-year-olds even need to, like, know how bad it is, like, that it's bad. Of course, like, kind of, like, sheltered, like, not all of it, but, like, a little taste of, like, that it's really bad. And we as preteens, teens, children, and even adults, we need to write to, like, our senators and governors and, like, show them how big the issue is. Like, it's really bad. If enough people feel strongly about removing our puppy mills from our state, our country, even our world, the change will come. Even the most ordinary person in the world can make the most extraordinary impact. If we band together, we can stop puppy mills for good. Will you be one of those people who will help to move the lever of change? You can change the world if you only have passion. That's fabulous. I can feel your passion. Thanks. So, do you think that other kids will like reading the book Lily Unleashed? I think that they definitely will. It has a great message, and I can like picture the characters... I can picture the scene with Lily and Cagney and Mrs. Hinselman out in the yard. Um, I can picture it. I can see it happening in my mind. I can see the yard. I can see the characters. And the ending is perfect. 
I love saying that instead of perfect. <laughs> Whenever I talk about dogs, I would definitely recommend this, especially to dog lovers. It's just like perfect if you love dogs, and if you hate when people are mean to animals, like in puppy mills. Um, the quotes and the author's story, the links for ways you can help, and dog facts, and the references were really cool. I also thought it was it was nice to read the history of puppy mills to see like how they happen. Like it actually happened, I believe the book said during the Great Depression. When people um, were looking for work and, like, there wasn't much work and it was suggested to um, farm dogs instead of crops and, like, it caught on. And, like, the dogs were, like, in chicken hoops and stuff because, like, they they couldn't, people couldn't really afford any better and, like, it just kind of went into a loop. And I feel like that was almost 100 years ago and we should evolve from yeah, that, right? definitely. Megan, that was just fabulous. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us. Thank you. How fabulous is Megan? It seriously makes me hopeful for the future to know that there are children being raised now who are so socially aware and who want to make a difference in the world. I hope that hearing from Joanna and from Megan will make you realize the importance of exercising your voice on this issue of puppy mills. Like Joanna shared, I'll have some quick and easy links for you in the show notes so that you can shoot an email off right to your congressperson and let them know that you're paying attention to this issue and that it matters to you as a voter and that you're watching. You're watching them and what they do and how they vote on this issue. And I also think it was extremely helpful information to know that when you're purchasing from a breeder or from somebody who says, oh, we get our dogs from USDA approved kennels, that that's not necessarily a good thing because that means it's a commercial breeding operation that has to be big enough to be registered with the USDA. And again, I'm kind of cynical, I know, but not shocking to me that the USDA or any other quasi-governmental agency isn't doing exactly what we think that they do. So please make sure you check out those links in the show notes. I also have some photos for you of Joanna and Cagney. And Cagney did pass away a couple years ago. And Joanna's new dog, Kiwi, who is also a rescued puppy mill dog, they have a TikTok. So I'll make sure that I have a link to that in the show notes for you also. And don't forget to pick up a copy of Lily Unleashed. It could be for a middle schooler in your life, but it could be for you too. It really covers this issue in such an educational and informative way, but also an uplifting and hopeful and feel-good way. So that'll do it for this episode of the Believe in Dog podcast. If you like this episode, remember that you can always leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It's pretty much the biggest compliment that you can give a podcaster. You can always find me at Believe in Dog Podcast on Facebook or at Erin the Dog Mom on Instagram. So until next time, this is Erin Scott sending you hugs and belly rubs. Believe in Dog Podcast is a production of Hugs and Belly Rubs, LLC.